0: Ever since the end of World War II, Russia has been the big bad for the United States, the end boss of the 16-bit side-scrolling thermonuclear clown fight that has been our time as a world power. We've been locked in a clash to determine which of our dumb civilizations will call the shots on a global basis, I guess after the other one is gone? The conflict has ebbed and flowed as the contours of the Cold War evolved. There were times when it even seemed like it might be behind us. The commentariat laughed at Mitt Romney in his 2012 campaign for president when he suggested that Russia was our biggest geopolitical adversary. But that seems like a quaint and distant time now. Just recently, Alabama elected a senator who has been quoted bragging about how his dad fought communism in World War II. Somehow, in his mind, the USSR seems to have replaced Nazi Germany as the bad guys we went to fight in the 40s. It seems strange that a country as far away as culturally and economically distinct as Russia would be such a persistent counterpoint to the United States on the world stage. There is a theory dating back to Sallust, the Roman historian, that empires need adversaries. If that is true of the United States... Then when the Nazis fell, the USSR rushed in to fill the vacuum. The nature of our adversary has changed in those years, as we have seen them reform their government from Stalinist communism to Putinist kleptocracy with a brief stopover in Yeltsinist quasi-capitalism. But what made them our adversary in the first place is the conceptual threat the Russian Revolution posed to American capital. The ownership class looked on the idea of a popular uprising putting a socialist economy in place as an intolerable hazard to their position of privilege. That's one of the many reasons today's film is so interesting. It's nearly 100 years old and tells the story of the first Russian Revolution coming to a single vessel in the Russian Navy. The microcosm of the ship and then Odessa is a nice bite-sized way of experiencing the arguments for and against the revolution and the violence used to try and advance and suppress the revolution. While the film is silent, it's able to explore the personal motivations of some of the revolution's adherents, which is a perspective we just never get to see in popular American media. This film is one of the most important works of early cinema, and we're lucky we get to talk about it on the show because, unlike People Go to Work in a French Factory or Train Comes Towards Screen, this is a war film. We're also lucky it survived the clash of our civilization against our end boss. And lucky we live in a country that allows its populace to experience the media of its end boss. The same was not true of Russia for a long time. We've had enough rotten meat. Even a dog wouldn't eat this. It could crawl overboard on its own. Today on Friendly Fire, Battleship Potemkin. A friendly fire the war movie podcast that is loaded with maggots but we're gonna try and serve it to you anyway i'm ben harrison
1: <laughs> i'm adam pranica
2: and i'm john roderick
0: Do you guys think we're the officers or, or are we the are we the noble sailors
1: the only people wearing glasses in this movie were the officers the doctor i think was trying to make the case that like you you lower decks types you just can't see what these things are the way i can
2: I'm going to take issue with that comment. There are glasses all over this movie. I feel like they're real signifiers of class and whatnot. I'm talking about the the people in the massacre on the Odessa steps.
1: You see yeah. glasses right and left. I think we're saying the same thing. Like there is a class distinction that the glasses demonstrate. And on the Potemkin, I'm saying that that, that is pronounced in that, in that scene. Sure. Was the Pince Nez a
0: popular type of glasses at the time, or did they have like three pairs of glasses in the costume department and they put them on <laughs> lots of different people?
2: They were a popular style of glasses at the time. They they seemed like a reference in this movie specifically to Trotsky. Hmm. And and that may just be that in 1925, like Trotsky was like really fashionable. Everybody was trying to bite his rhymes, his Pince Nez rhymes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> the the quote at the beginning was originally a Trotsky quote. Um, the version I watched had a Lenin quote, though.
1: Yeah. Whoa, there are different versions with different quotes up top. I did not know that. There are a lot of different versions of this movie because it was
0: variously censored by different governments and re finished and re-released i don't know how many different versions there are online i watched this on criterion and i think it was like pretty close to the 19 uh 25 original version but there was even a version where they looped the dialogue um wow in the age of talkies
1: yeah had to be an awkward moment when eisenstein pushes this out into the world and then like couple years later jazz singer comes out he's got to be like oh fuck (laughs) (laughs) did we get any audio from set guys (laughs) tell me we got some audio I remember the sound
0: guy seemed very drunk (laughs) and it didn't bother me at the time but in retrospect I wish he'd been recording
1: Eisenstein said that he would hope that a new score would be produced and attached to this film every 20 years Really, And it made me wonder a lot about how just changing the score could change the feeling of the thing. Yeah.
0: Where's the Neil Young score for this? Periodically, the the roots of a film have to be replenished with the blood of patriots, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I want the Hans Zimmer score of Battleship (laughs) Potemkin. Inject that into my veins. No, I want Metallica to score it. I think the last score to be written was in 2011. Shostakovich was the score for the version we saw, right, Ben? Uh, Sounds Russian enough. Yeah, you're right. I'm just going to say that it was.
2: (laughs) Sure, Shostakovich. (laughs) This movie came out, it was made in 1925, right? And that's a very fraught time in the Soviet moment. Trotsky was in line to be a leader of the Soviet Union and it was only Stalin Stalin's rise that kind of edged Trotsky out and eventually when this movie came out Trotsky was still one of the leaders but by 1929 he had been exiled so it's possible that the original the original movie had a Trotsky quote and then got replaced with a Lenin quote
1: and Trotsky is snowball right Uh, he's the Falcon (laughs) see I was gonna say Trotsky edging is when you can't finish until you Finish reading The Permanent Revolution. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this was like a part of the, the commemoration of the 20 year anniversary of the first Russian Revolution. It was like part of a big program of, of arts and uh, celebrations. And one, one thing I read was that there was a, a very different script that was set all over the USSR. That they went into production with and they had like terrible, like weather related production problems that forced Eisenstein to basically cut the script down and expand one scene that was set on a battleship and kind of center the the story around the battleship because the other stuff that they were shooting just wasn't coming out.
2: Yeah, it's a weird thing to commemorate uh, in that the 1905 revolution, it was not so successful the the tsar <laughs> r- remained in power for another 12 years but i think within revolutionary cadres in russia it's credited with being the thing that it was the revolution that allowed the revolution to happen 15 years later so in a sense ben it's kind of like i don't know what would you say the the hip hop revolution of the mid nineties. <laughs> no, maybe that was a dead end thought, but strange to think that this, that this classic film is commemorating a thing that like uh, hardly anyone now talks about or thinks about the Russian revolution of-, of 1905.
0: What would have happened to this boat? Cause like, you know, they sail through the the task force that's been sent to, to deal with the Potemkin at the end is there a port that they can go to they're in the Black Sea right can they just like get back to life as normal I don't think they could right
2: no in fact the Potemkin was like reintegrated into the imperial Russian fleet and they actually changed the name of the boat they wanted to like erase any history of the mutiny
0: yeah History erasure is kind of the national sport of Russia, though. That's right? really,
2: that's right. They just painted the Potemkin out of all the pictures. There was sta- <laughs> Stalin with his arm around the Potemkin, and then all of a sudden it was just, just Stalin.
1: No one wants to be associated with either the battleship Potemkin or Max Temkin. Oof. <laughs>
2: Oof. I think that, that, that like, they, uh, the Potemkin, like, raced to a Romanian port, and the Romanians kind of gave it. Uh, gave it a birth, but um, it didn't end with everyone waving flags and eating fresh meat, I'll tell you that.
1: I wasn't expecting to be exhilarated by this film, but the moment they took the Potemkin out of harbor into the sea, I I, I remember seeing this film once in, in film class, and I didn't remember this part. I got very excited at the possibilities as soon as they head out there. It felt very pirate ship adjacent to me what's gonna happen they have all this firepower like the film itself is an inspiration to a lot of other movies but that moment felt like the movie that inspired under siege (laughs) you know definitely inspired a lot of movies like it's like
0: among the most influential films in film history Did, did
2: both of you see this movie in film class
0: this was my first
1: time watching it and i i'm shocked by that you're not allowed to take a film class if you haven't seen this movie. Like legally, <laughs> I uh, I may have fudged facts
0: on my uh, on my application to film school. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <Please>. <laughs> but it does seem like a movie that like you see it on all the lists, right? It's right up there with Citizen Kane, top 20 movies of all time, one of the great films. But it it feels like it's very much in there because no one can put birth of a nation in there anymore and they have to have one epic silent film you have to give the nod to russia you have to give the nod to russia but also every filmmaker has has taken a a, a bit from this movie and incorporated i mean you see so many little moments go by but the movie itself in so many ways it's it's like watching a puppet show
0: yeah the stakes never feel like they get that high in this movie. I was certain that the guys that they put under the tarp and were threatening to execute were going to get executed. And that was going to be the inciting incident of the of the sailors overthrowing the officers. Like, like nothing makes an audience cleave to one side of a a conflict in a film like an injustice right and there's several small injustices that lead to that moment but the fact that the tarp is thrown off and none of those guys get unjustly executed (laughs) felt like you like you messed up the screenplay
1: well (laughs) even like unwinding it to a scene before that like there's no politics in starvation right You Whoa. must be on their side. yeah, is this a, is this a film paper we're listening to now? Yeah, there yeah no, there's
2: no politics in starvation, okay. Go. there's
1: only one side to that argument and it's and it's the side of uh, of the mutineers.
2: No one's gonna eat that meat. Yeah, but Ben's right. it keeps coming back to I mean they're basically mutinying and stealing a battleship because the food was bad. And having been on a few ships in my day where the food was bad, mutinying they could all be put up against the wall and shot so it is funny that the odessa steps massacre which i don't think actually happened in real life like the movie pours a lot of energy into showing the the czar's troops just killing civilians and wantonly firing into crowds but somehow the movie wasn't prepared to have the the officers of the Potemkin be any crueler than just bad meat cooks.
1: (laughs) It's interesting that the meat wasn't the final straw, it was the borscht. How bad could that borscht have been for them to refuse that? Oh, well,
2: I think it was, was it borscht? I thought that what happened was the chef took the, the maggoty meat and threw it in a soup.
0: I think it's a little ambiguous, so I
2: don't know. The movie had to spend a lot of the screen time just having people look at the camera and make a karate chop motion with their hand while they were pretending to shout. Mm. And so (laughs) it didn't have the time to actually fill in some of that plot stuff because a guy had to make a karate chop and shout. And then it had to switch to a different angle on him doing the same thing and then switch to a different guy doing the same thing.
0: I mean, like it's so early in film history that we're like, we're seeing them make mistakes that you make in your in your first year at film school in this one of the greatest films of all time <laughs> like
2: i think that's the that's the thing that stood out to me was that I, having like every kid that ever got a hold of a video camera having made a few m- movies where my friends and i went in the backyard and staged sword fights Mm-hmm. A lot of those movies, a lot of the things that we were just inspired to do, the shots, I guess, that, that seemed necessary to, to flesh out a film. I saw so many of them in this that I wonder whether it's something innate in human beings. Yeah. They insist on getting all that coverage of people <laughs> ye- like yelling.
0: Yeah. Well, it's also like one of the earliest examples of montage, and we've talked about montage a bit on this show, how it's a film technique that arises in the USSR as a reaction against telling stories that are based on the subjective individual experience of a hero because like everything in the USSR is oriented toward collective action so a montage lets you show lots of people participating in a story at the same time Hmm. and like they're very like rudimentary montages in this in this movie like like they hadn't quite worked out everything that a montage could be I don't think but Eisenstein was like one of the people that invented it as an idea which is amazing like it's amazing to see the early work of of a filmmaker that actually invented something
1: eisenstein was 27 oh wow really insane right pretty bonkers it's funny how
2: impressive it was and how many of the shots you see like taken out of whole cloth in other films that the iconic center of the movie, the untouchables with Kevin Costner of the baby carriage going down the steps is like note for note out of this, the whole go to the mattresses scene in the Godfather.
1: There's Nordberg going down the stadium steps in the wheelchair. Yeah. <laughs> in the naked gun. Uh-huh.
2: I could see like how this movie ends up on those lists because every person who ever went to film school took a little bit but it all feels like a it all feels like those little bits i don't know how they got away with stealing it in the Untouchables so completely yeah like every single filmmaker who saw that movie must have rolled their eyes but you know for me (laughs) watching it as a 20 year old i was like whoa genius
0: i always thought that the naked gun scene was a parody of The Untouchables, but it's like a parody of an homage, I guess. Right. Everyone should have a friend like you. I mean, the mind boggles. (laughs) (laughs) It's also a movie that was considered like extraordinarily violent when it was released. A lot of the censorship of it was about that more than the like politics or, you know, worker-oriented ethos of the film. A lot of the time they don't even really convincingly convey that the guns are shooting, you know, like when yeah. the when the Cossacks are marching down the steps, it it is a long time before you feel like, oh, like these guys are actually firing their guns into the crowd. You see them, you see them holding the guns up, but you don't see puffs of smoke for a long time. And you just see people kind of like falling over. they like, are they, are they scared and tripping down the steps <laughs> or are these soldiers doing something?
2: we're used to seeing violence depicted as physical action we think of violence in movies now as kinetic exclusively but implied violence is just as violence like the violence in this movie is political violence and what i'm sure made it so controversial and made it so shocking to people was the murder of innocents the kind of mechanical way those czarist soldiers marched down the steps with no, you know, they, they didn't respond to that mother's appeal. They just shot her. They didn't respond to the mother with the baby carriage. They just shot her. Even though we didn't see the, the explosion of blood, like it must've been appalling.
1: There's something so scary about, the Cossacks being faceless too, right? Like we don't really see them and know them the way that we know the innocent people getting getting killed by them. I think that technique really ratcheted up the, the horror of that and it had to make that scene shocking to a movie-going audience of its time.
0: I had written a note watching the movie about the difference between the violence that the state is perpetrating on the people versus the violence of the sailors rising up and attacking the officers and how that they feel really different. And, you know, in thinking about it, thinking about all of the violence that we've seen in all of the films that we've seen, like so much of it is actually state violence, but this feels uniquely condemnatory of state violence in the films that we've seen.
2: There are a lot of, Little little moments in it that kind of mark it off as a film from the early Bolshevik period, and one of those is that they throw all the officers into the ocean, but still, as a group of sailors, they manage to command a battleship into action, and we see Valkulenchuk, who dies, is the one that inspires the the revolt but he's also the biggest burliest most mustachioed of all the men (laughs) yeah and after he's dead his friend who is the second burliest most mustachioed guy (laughs) mostly takes charge of the battleship and there's a there's a important scene where somebody is on a telephone going like You know, yelling down to the engine room and he comes and actually like pushes the guy out of the way and grabs the phone. And there's the, you know, the, the, the Bolshevik implication is that without an, without an officer class, a group of 1000 sailors will just naturally to each according to his need from each, according to his ability, (laughs) figure out how to command a battleship. And, and the great thing that and what makes this movie so 1925 is that in that scene in particular, and throughout the movie, the, the leader of the group is just the biggest dude
1: with the biggest mustache. And the Bolsheviks (laughs) would not have endorsed that. Because everyone's the same amount of bigness and everyone has the same mustache. Well,
2: no, but like, it's not like the Marxist revolution isn't about just reinstalling, like, whoever the biggest bully is, or at least not on paper. Um, But this movie does not make the case that the guy that commands the battleship is the smartest one. Right. Or like no, no skinny kid. Uh, by virtue of his ability rises up in this movie to become the natural leader he is irrespective of the class into which he was born
1: if there were he would have been my guy
2: right exactly instead what happens is it's just like sailors are big and burly and the burliest one and, but somehow like they they also like this guy with one stripe on his shoulder knows how to like, command an entire ship of men there's a lot of Code and code switching in this movie.
1: My moment of pedantry is that Vakulinchuk is an absolute unit. <laughs> there is no way he got that big eating a half a cup of maggoty meat and a quarter cup of borscht a day. Like, he's a big boy. <laughs> he is totally stacked.
0: One of the things that really struck me about the cast was that they were not beautiful people. They just found like regular ass people. And I don't think any of these people were like movie stars or otherwise famous.
1: Do you think that made the Odessa step scene more effective to you? Because I thought a lot about that during that scene. Like, look at all these people with interesting faces being shot. It It made me feel that more deeply, I think, than if it were just... Uh, Hollywood casting call faces for extras.
2: I thought a lot about it in the ter- in terms of it being 1925 and this being not just set in Odessa,
1: but filmed there.
0: Maybe these were the most beautiful people in Odessa.
1: You're going to have 1925 face in 1925. <laughs> yeah, right. You are. There's not,
2: not everyone is going to look like Lillian Gish. You know, this is a Black Sea
0: population.
1: Yeah. Everyone on the steps were teenagers. That's what's shocking. <laughs> Let us <a> city miles on <laughs> those Odessa faces.
0: I think my wife's people kind of come from this part of the world. So it was very uh exciting for her to see like kind of traditional life ways of the past being depicted, and also her ears really perked up, or I guess her eyes perked up in the case of this film when the Lying about Let's get the Jews also <laughs> popped up on the screen.
1: Boy, that guy really misread the room. <laughs> he sure did. That, huh? <laughs> Yikes.
2: As the town comes to see Vakulinchuk um, and little by little, uh, more and more people come to pay their respects. I think the movie is doing a lot of work to show that at first, the people there are the sort of lowest working class and gradually more and more people from the from the upper class start to come pay their respects the women in white dresses who are twirling their umbrellas you know lots of lots of fancy people and the and the fancy people are not paying their respects properly right they come they're kind of looky-looing but they gradually start to their sympathies start to be with the people and there's a lot of stuff that I don't think we could ever properly read into the way that all those people are dressed and are behaving because I think to an audience in 1925 that we would have seen that stuff as emblematic of a certain kind of person, a certain template of person, but that anti-Semite who was, you know, kind of smirking and he was dressed a little bit nicer he clearly represented a, a type and the movie made such a huge point of, you know, like the revolution understands that anti-Semitism is a ploy on the part of the moneyed class to deflect yeah. that energy, which I do not think is what the Bolsheviks ended up being, <laughs> you know, like... In
0: 1940. (laughs) Stalin certainly did not end up being a friend to the Jewish people.
2: No. And so that from 1925 to 1940, that transformation, uh, I don't I don't think of the revolution, the Bolshevik revolution as being one that, you know, that took a hard stand against anti-Semitism. But this movie sure did.
1: There are a couple of scenes. Where you get the sense that the mob is a living thing. And that's one of the scenes, right? Yeah. As soon as that guy steps out on that ledge with that comment, the entire mob swarms him and takes him down. We see it on the ship. We see it there. We see it on the steps.
0: Yeah. One thing I felt very conscious of watching this was how much, even with translation, I wasn't getting. (laughs) Because I think that... You're right, John, like, you know, the way people are dressed or the kinds of adornments they have uh, probably meant something very specific at the time. Like, you know, it'll it'll go in close on somebody's belt and there's like a duck on the belt. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I'm like, is that a, is that a, like super evocative symbol in 1925 or is it just a duck on a belt? <laughs> you know,
1: why is he smoking a cigar? We'll never know.
0: It seems like this movie is loaded with shit like that. Like, the camera, when it goes in for a close-up, feels extremely intentional, but...
1: I uh, felt a lot of trepidation about doing this episode of Friendly Fire for that reason, Ben. I feel like you could spend an entire week doing research about Battleship Potemkin and feel like you have not done enough. Yeah. In talking about it. We're
2: used to the the volume being really turned up on how uh, the privileged are portrayed. If we If the privileged are going to be made the enemy... By virtue of their distance from the people. But in this movie, again, because of, of where it's set and filmed, like, you know, nobody's got good teeth. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter how rich you are. It's just you, your, <laughs> your teeth are just made out of a better class of mahogany.
1: <laughs> Very early
2: Affleck teeth in this film. <laughs> For me, only the women that were in really, really white dresses was it made clear the distinction between them and the and the women in whose dresses were were dark you know you could see mm. shabby versus versus clean
1: I think about that shot John where the woman in the white dress who's also wearing the white gloves is like clutching at her gut shot and her gloves are torn too can't stop thinking about that shot
0: yeah the one that really got me was the woman in the white dress like twirling her parasol and then the camera cuts back down to the angle where she picked her parasol up from and a guy with no legs kind of scoots over on the
1: steps yeah
2: right yeah a a, a great juxtaposition
1: but at that moment they're all united totally i like it when that guy pops back up on the subway later when he's
2: running down the steps and he's like leaping five steps at a time it was like
0: i could really move killer stunt work and he had those like little little handles that he was using to protect his hands from the ground.
2: Yeah. What I didn't fully understand, you know, the the officers, if you're talking about a a revolution of the people, it's very tidy to have it happen on a ship in a military context because it's like it's clear who the right. bourgeoisie are, it's clear who the the feudal lords are and it's clear who the people are.
0: Whereas like in real life, like you could see me walking down the street and assume I'm a bourgeois pig, but I'm actually a man of the people. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> a man of the people. That's why you, you wear that T-shirt that says man of the people, please
2: don't shoot me. <laughs> but when the film takes to the streets of Odessa, it's a much more complicated situation, right? The movie is trying to tell us that all of the people of the city are in support of the battleship.
0: Everybody's got a basket of eggs to donate to this battleship.
2: Yeah. And the, the movie accepts the, the signing on of people of all classes and, and creeds. And then again, the enemy is just the army or the, the Cossacks or the, you know, the czar's minions. There isn't any element in this movie where where actual class war is depicted.
1: John, I have a question about that skiff scene before you get too far. I know so little about Odessa during this time that I took that scene as everyone on Odessa has a skiff and everyone is giving what they can to support the soldiers on the battleship. But the, the significance of that scene is very different if... If you're saying that that the skiffs are for the riches and the riches are giving their nice chickens and pigs to the ship, instead, how how broad was the support of the skiff food relief scene? Uh, because I interpreted as the former.
2: I don't think that the skiffs were like rich pleasure boats. I think that that was that was meant to to portray like the whole of the city coming out uh-huh. but when we see them handing the handing the crew like geese and piglets and huge baskets of eggs interestingly we never see a scene where a little boy holds up one bruised tomato uh-huh. and says <laughs> yeah you know take my you know my contribution too This is me last tomato, me Lord. (laughs) All we see is this incredible abundance. Yeah. Right. And, and it, and I think the film is kind of either it's unclear or maybe we're not able to see what it's trying to say, or it may be garbled about like, so wait a minute is Odessa an extremely rich town and everyone there has the ability to give a huge basket, basket of eggs or are the, is the moneyed class converted to the cause? Or are they just converted to the cause for the Potemkin,
1: but not for the next ship that comes in? If you're making propaganda, I think Eisenstein has to be very careful in this scene, right? To not cut from the gifts being given to the sailors taking a nap on deck, picking meat out of their teeth. Right. You know, you must remain on their side. And I think it was definitely done to just, to just sort of cut from the gift giving scene to another scene of conflict. Like you never see these guys lounging comfortably in the officers quarters. They're like, it's crammed everywhere. No one's comfortable.
2: Kind of just like this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> you guys in your hammocks always bumping me as I'm trying to walk through the corridor, <laughs> farting in the night. <laughs>
1: I think we touched on it earlier, but like the difference in masculinity between the officer class and the unit class and the hammocks, <laughs> you know, you get this this effete person with a riding crop, like the whipping at one of the shirtless guys. Don't tell me that there's not a subtext there.
2: Mm, what is it, Adam? Just me. All right. You know the the, the key the key to the 1905 revolution. And I think the key to the to the Potemkin itself was that this was the same year that of the, the Russo-Japanese war that happened right. on the other side of the world.
0: They talk about it a little bit. This is this food is worse than what you get in a Japanese prison camp.
2: And what happened in that war was that the Japanese handed the Russians their ass in a way that no one in the world expected the sailors had lost their faith in their officers because there was an overall loss of faith in what had formerly been a kind of feeling of Russian or European supremacy.
0: The Russo Japanese war was about the Russians trying to invade like far enough South that they could have a warm water port in on the Pacific. Is that right?
2: Yeah, it was a, about control over Manchuria and Korea. And I I think China had 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 such hegemony over that whole region. And the Japanese and the Chinese fought 10 years prior, whatever in the Sino-Japanese War. And the Chinese lost badly to the Japanese. And the Japanese were like, okay, we're taking over. We're going to take over. You know, we're going to be the new dominant power here. In the aftermath of China being defeated, the European powers saw a power vacuum and rushed in. And I think the Russians felt like they could just come in and, and take control of Manchuria and there would be no resistance. And the Japanese hurt the Russians and then in the, in the aftermath of that war basically took control over, the, over Manchuria themselves, setting up the first half of the 20th century and all the bad things that happened.
0: Right. Yeah. It's totally amazing to imagine that the first Russian revolution was happening at the same time as that war and like all of the, all of the things that ensued from that.
2: And the, the hubris that the Russians had that they could, you know, they got their warm water port, which is, which is what. The history of the last 200 years is all about russia trying to get a freaking warm water port that's why they invaded afghanistan that's why they expanded all the ssrs down there just trying to find some freaking place to get their
1: boats
0: out of the ice
1: why don't they just heat their own cold water ports? (laughs) why haven't they thought of that that's
0: the long game with with global warming you
1: say that as you say
2: that as a joke but in fact Vladivostok now is a warm water port because they built a power plant. Wow. That warmed the water. Not uh, the power plant was to make power, but the side effect of it was it warmed the water enough that it that it keeps the ice out of the port. They used to have to have icebreakers. It's a crazy thing. Brilliant.
0: Wow. And now they're the scourge of the high seas with their vast <laughs> navy.
2: Oh, well, that's the thing. They thought, the Russians thought all they needed to do was take Port Arthur, but they neglected the fact that they had to supply and support this port all the way across the entirety of Asia. Every single bruised tomato, they had to ship all the way across the world. So. Bad bad czarist hubris.
1: A lot of interesting meals in this movie. How about salt on bread? Mmm, salty. And you know that (laughs) loaf. That loaf had a pretty tight crumb. That's (laughs) some heavy-duty stuff. Not a terribly
0: glutinous crumb structure.
1: (laughs) Uh, John, did you ever eat fat on bread when you were in parts of Eastern Europe? When I visited Poland, that was like... The main thing to eat all the time. Get yourself a, a tall glass of uh, of your beverage of choice and then like slather that fat onto your tight crumb bread. Yep, fat on bread and um, like
2: rind, fat rind. What are you talking about? Like, like render, like lard? Yeah. Or? But also just straight up um, what they called bacon was just the fat part. Just the rind. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh And not the meat part. I had a guy in Romania tell me one time when I was like, it's interesting because in like America and Canada, like what we call bacon is like this part of the pig, except cut more deeply uh, to where the meat is. And what you're calling bacon is just the fatty outside part. And the guy looked at me and, you know, thought of, he was thinking about it and he was like, <laughs> Yeah, Romanian pigs don't
1: have meat. <laughs> That's so interesting. That explains so much. And I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> I, I looked down at this bowl of pig fat the same way. I was like, so where's, where's the rest? I mean, there's going to be like pig stuff on the menu too, right? Like pig meat?
2: <laughs> no, they don't have meat. Shut up, kid. They don't have meat there. The meat gets used somewhere else.
1: I tell you what, uh, it endeared me to my Polish family quite a bit to uh, hang, a, hang an inch of that pork lard on a on a slice of bread and take it down. With a little salt, yeah, or a lot of yeah. salt.
0: I've been buttered up before, but this is ridiculous. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, you got to say, lard is pretty darn good. It was really good. The guys on the Potemkin, on the battleship Potemkin, would have killed for a little lard.
1: Yeah, they really would have. Not a lot of fat on that uh, maggoty meat no. they were looking at.
2: Put a lot of fat on those big units. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, those guys, those guys got some lard. Uh-huh. They're thick. Hey, do you guys want to hear a moment of pedantry? Yes. In the Imperial Squadron near the end of the film, we see close-ups of triple gun turrets on gangut Class Dreadnought. It is possibly made this way to show the power of the Imperial fleet. But this isn't an anachronism for battleships of 1905 were much smaller pre-dreadnoughts with twin turrets only just like Potemkin. Gnegnats entered service in 1914. I noticed that and it hurt me to see those those big
1: <laughs> dreadnought turrets. I was like, "Come on. Come on you guys." <laughs> Did it also titillate you to see those turrets get greased repeatedly? <laughs> that was that was very suggestive yeah that was something right out
2: of Emmanuel goes to Thailand
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean is that one of the scenes that got censored the Middle Eastern uh, distributors made
0: sure that that was cut out
1: (laughs) I thought this film uh, did a great job with that tension in the fifth act the will they or won't they fire or be fired upon by the fleet Probably not something that people talk a lot about in terms of being uh, inspirational to the films that followed, because I think we just sort of take it as as like a a quality that all films with third acts have. But I thought it was really well done here. It's interesting that it
0: doesn't feel like a deus ex machina that the sailors on the other ships just decline to engage them in naval combat. Yeah,
2: based just on some signals they sent up via flag and semaphore, you know, not not being versed in semaphore, I wasn't able to discern how convincing the argument they were making from ship to ship was, like, "Join us, friend." And you know, and like five other
1: ships are like, "Yes, friend." They were very lucky that Darth was on that <laughs> other ship. There's a fair amount of semaphore play before yeah. We get down to business, huh? Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Oh, boy.
1: it's more where that came from, fellas. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about you, but it it felt satisfying to have like the victory without firing a shot ending. It felt uh, kind of Cuban Missile Crisis adjacent at the end, like that exhalation of relief. Unclear what's going to happen to this crew after, but could have been a whole lot worse. I liked it.
0: It is successfully triumphant feeling at the end. Yeah. Do you guys also like get that thing of like I kind of wanted there to be end credits on this movie? Like it it ends on on such a high note and then it just cuts to black and you're just like okay, what like, you know, enjoy our refractory period while the <laughs> well, we read about who the yeah, key yeah. grips were.
1: <laughs> Do you just get up out of your movie theater seat and walk out immediately at the know. like is the lights up cue just Smashed right at the end of this.
0: It seems like the premiere of this film, this was all like a big gala for celebrating, you know, a, a major turning point in the revolution. But
2: there would have been an overture, the the symphony would have kept playing. Right. It's interesting. We've seen a handful of films that are part of a sort of a nation building project, right? Film can be really crucial in establishing a sort of political story. But this is the, this is a movie that happens that gets made during a period where the story is still being written. There's, there was so much propaganda happening. So, you know, the, the Bolshevik revolution was so self referential in that it, it ushered in a new style of art, a new style of writing, a new style of everything, new, new fashion,
0: It's like a very early example of a mass media piece of propaganda. Like Goebbels quote about this film is it's a marvelous film without equal in cinema. And anyone who had no firm political conviction could become a Bolshevik after seeing the film. And they were like, this is the kind of shit we need to be doing with our crazy ideology. Sure. It's Lenny
2: Reifenstahl is the is the one that took the most from it. Right. Just in the sense of like. That kind of montage and that sort of like, here are the strong people against the, against the cruel.
0: Yeah. In Lenny Riefenstahl's version, the guy says, let's get the Jews, and they put him up on their shoulders and parade through the town.
1: (laughs) And the Notre Dame fight song plays? (laughs) Why does that always play when somebody
2: says, let's get the Jews? (laughs) It's interesting that most of the movies that are made in America now, we are trying to write the story of history of our own history, but... But the movies that we're making are always um, we're always taking a hard look at ourselves. We're trying to rewrite the story over the top of the story that that was written at the time. You know, all of our Vietnam movies, they're all us taking a critical look, not at the regime that came before, but a critical look at ourselves. And so we keep writing and rewriting, overwriting our own story. We are citizens of an American nation, you know, in this like constant process of trying to get it right or more right, more and more accurate. And a movie like this is, you know, it's not condensing stuff in order to tell the whole story. You know, it's not, it's not conflating two characters in order to make it more dramatic. It's really trying to tell, it's trying to tell a story where they think the, there is no end, right? Like this was the beginning of a thing that that they presumed would would ultimately sweep the world. This was the beginning of a revolution that became the the future.
1: Where is the line between like pride in a successful revolutionary act and inspiration for future similar acts? Here. I feel like there's a tension in propaganda of this kind, right? between those two ideas let's
2: say you command a battleship in the navy of the USSR do you show this movie on saturday night
0: think you check with the guys in the mess first and be like how's uh how are supplies looking <laughs> i mean that's something that i've thought a lot about in the like movies that we've seen about soldiers in in russia is that like they seem no less invested in the economic ideology of the USSR than any other soldiers, like and and it was like a pretty recent change for them. Like, you know, it's it's amazing to be in World War Two and be like, I'm a lifelong communist. I I grew up communist. My whole family's communist. We believe in this. But like, your dad's dad <laughs> didn't live there. You know, yeah, he lived in a, under a totally different regime. Yeah,
2: you have to think that. Well, the the story is that things were so bad for so many people that they had nothing to lose, but. Uh, In this movie, there are an awful lot of people that have geese and piglets and baskets of eggs and a skiff.
0: Oh, yeah. It's all like locally sourced artisanal stuff, too. Yeah, that's right. Organic.
1: A pig that's almost entirely fat. All fat, no muscle.
2: (laughs) But I, uh, I think we're seeing in our own time that the people that are the most disenfranchised by the regime, like they're their revolt on their own isn't enough to ever overturn a regime. It requires buy-in by a lot of people that are probably complacent and comfortable most of the time. And at a certain point, something tips and people that actually have a lot to lose to start to um, support the revolution. You know, that's the key to a revolution. It's not just the soldiers that have maggoty meat it's the people on the on shore with the with the white parasols that are like you know what yeah i throw my parasol down so that the sailors can have better meat i think this movie tells that story to those to those people at the time right this movie came out in 25 it was only 7 years later that the famine in ukraine started that killed i don't know 10 million Ukrainians so no one I think watching this movie is thinking oh well one of the side effects of this revolution is that we're all going to starve to death
1: much in the way that no one makes a film like Battleship Potemkin anymore no one wears mustaches like the ones we see in this film anymore either Good Lord. Really powerful mustaches in this movie. Guys, this is our 149th episode. I'm I'm hoping that mustaches have not been a rating system in a Friendly Fire episode before, because I'm going to make them the rating system for Battleship Potemkin. I like it. I felt a little bit of reluctance stepping up to rewatch this movie, because kind of a lot of films I watched in film studies classes are ones that I would call not necessarily rewatchable. You know? Like you watch it for the craft, for the paper you have to write, and and that's that. But I really enjoyed watching this film. It was really more trance-like than watching many other films. And I think it's it's gotta be because of its silent film quality. You just sort of give yourself over to this thing and I mean a film without dialogue means that you cannot look down at your phone and become distracted like you <laughs> need to be in it visually to get the story so I think that really helped too there was there was like attention consequences to watching a film of this era that that I could appreciate I got excited when I saw film techniques that I knew were among the first to ever be seen like Odessa steps is is a great moment in this film but like there are like dolly shots set up on those stairs. And I was just blown away by some of this stuff. And I I imagined like in the same way audiences getting up from their seats and running away from, from train driving at screen, like imagine the <laughs> gasps of an audience watching some of these techniques for the first time. It must've just been exhilarating. I've got a lot of respect for a film that somehow remains compelling a hundred years and I think a lot of notable filmmakers consider this one of their favorite films and I kind of roll my eyes at that because like it's a very cool director thing to say that Battleship Potemkin is one of your favorite movies I read that uh, this film has 1346 shots in it for its 86 minute runtime I think that's one of the things that that makes it one of Michael Bay's favorite movies that's a, that's a shitload of shots and a super heavily edited film. You might not expect that when you step up to the plate watching Battleship Potemkin. Sergei Eisenstein? More like Sergei Einstein, because the formula for this film is E equals MC stairs. <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> <laughs> who, who authorized that? I'm going to give this film four mustaches. Wow.
0: <laughs> I'm really glad I got to see this movie. Um, it is such a different vernacular. And, you know, we find that to greater and lesser degrees when we watch really old movies, like some of them are like seem so current and so, um, you know, surprisingly trenchant. And this one feels like it's both kind of speaking to people of a different mindset and people of just an unthinkable time and place. It's a fun watch all the same. And it's like, it's, it's a pretty light lift at an hour and six minutes, but I found myself like drifting a little bit too. And, uh, and I think it's just, it does not have all of the tools of a modern, you know, Disney action film to, <laughs> to keep my attention. But if you're interested in history and the history of film, I think you got to see it. I think I was really remiss in leaving this off my have watched list for as long as I have. And um, I'm really glad I've seen it and really glad that I can you know, revisit the other films I've seen in this new context of having seen where some of the ideas of them came from. So, uh, yeah, uh, I'll give it four mustaches as well really really cool that this survives you know
2: my dad was born in 1921 like he was older than the baby in the baby carriage like he was he was the toddler not even toddler he was a he was a 4-year-old when this movie was made so although it seems like this movie is from 1 billion years ago it's actually Uh, I mean, my dad just died a few years ago. Well, actually a while ago now, it seems like a few years ago. But like in living memory, still, um, these events. And that's one of the things that's craziest to me. And we're now entering into a span of history unprecedented, which is that from here on out, a hundred years ago will be better and better documented so that the people... In 2050, we'll have plenty of films from 100 years prior um, that will give them a really, really good idea of what it was like. And for us now to watch a film from 100 years ago, it just seems like the dawn of time. And part of that is the storytelling, because we see in this in this movie, like one of the very earliest movies, we still get the shot of a guy in the boiler room with some gauges and, and sweat and oil pouring down as someone yells at him to give him give us more power. But, you know, we see that scene in every single submarine movie, in every single battleship movie. I mean, he's basically like, I can't get enough power, Captain. <laughs> you know, it's it, all the way to Star Trek and beyond. So in that sense, it's, uh, this film takes place in the modern era but in the sense of how primitive the pace of storytelling is here and it's weird because it's this is coming on the heels of 2000 years of the tradition of theater but because film is a new media there're just there's just shot after shot of people sort of recapitulating an idea my only ability is to either get into a story or not get into a story and the story here is you know is just really like these guys didn't get enough They, they didn't like their food they were mad they mutinied and then they came into the harbor and they thought they would be in trouble but the people supported them but then the government didn't support them but then the other sailors did the end and it was like ah just give me something. One, just a like I never, I never wished for a love story subplot more. So I just, I feel like I often can see like recommending a movie as a must see, even if it's not enjoyable. Like I don't recommend anybody watch fires on the plane because it's like a date movie, but this movie, I just, ugh. but that said, I mean, how do you, how do you rag on battleship Potemkin? i don't know i feel like feel like giving it the old adam four four and a half mustaches just to get out of it but i'm gonna give it a solid three mustaches just because i'm not i'm not smart enough to have a take
1: well the hard part's over rating the film this is it only gets easier from here john when we select our guys who's your guy Well, I mean, my favorite character
2: in the movie is the sort of buxom and matronly woman with the giant sun hat who brings the goose to the Potemkin. She's the first one in in the entire flotilla. She's the first one there, and she brought that Christmas goose. I was so thrilled, like pretty exciting to imagine that butcher who was originally my guy and they start throwing pigs through the window at him. <laughs> <laughs> like that's a big day for him. Big day. If you're like, <laughs> he he's not just lounging in his hammock. He's got pigs to kill. But that woman, she was so excited to bring that goose to them. So she's my guy.
1: Good guy. I am reluctant to choose main characters. I don't believe this qualifies, but Vakulinchuk is my guy because he's the classic uh, first guy to call the revolt and also first guy to die (laughs) from it. (laughs) Hey guys, follow me! (laughs) And then he dies for it. Uh, That's going to be my guy making most days, but his death made me think a lot about that shot in... um, in the Master where Joaquin Phoenix is, is like taking a nap in that netting and he's shot top down. I wonder if in any way uh his death at the end of that rope inspired that composition. Feels like there's a long list of inspirational shots from this film for modern films and, and Vakulinchuk's death was was one that I thought a lot about, so he's my guy. What about you, Ben? My guy is uh, he's in the
0: galley cleaning the plates for the officers before they uh, before the revolt pops off and he's the dude that is cleaning like the today is your special day plate that says <laughs> give us this day our daily bread and yeah. smashes it he's doing a thing that may this may be the first time it was ever depicted in film the like whistle while you work and then like notice something like he's he's clearly <laughs> whistling in that scene right and notice that plate and get real outraged by it. And I, uh, I loved it. It was like, it was my favorite performance in the movie.
1: Very realistic plate washing from him too. Yeah. Let's see what the 120-sided die has in store for us. Okay, I got to clean up this coffee mug here. Keep the,
2: keep the grounds out of the die. My daughter made, made the coffee this morning. One of our new chores.
1: Maybe have her wash out that glass with a fistful of grass. Yeah, she
2: should. My (laughs) coffee mug that says, give us this day our daily java.
0: (laughs) Coming soon to the Friendly Fire web store. (laughs) Give us this day our daily java mug.
2: (laughs) She bought me a, a mug for Father's Day that said, world's best farter. And then underneath, in the little letters, it says, I mean father. And she's so proud of it. And every time she brings me coffee, she she puts it in the world's best farter mug and giggles and thinks it's wonderful.
1: <laughs> we should make that mug just to imagine the dozens of conversations that go like, oh, cool mug. What's that from? And the, and the, the mug owner is like... You know that movie, Battleship Potemkin? (laughs) (laughs) Give us this day our daily java. That's from Battleship Potemkin?
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's the coffee mug that uh, was heard around the world when it was smashed.
2: (laughs) Uh, But anyway, this is not in the world's best farter mug. This is in my other mug, and now it's clean. So here we go.
0: 26. 26. Wow. 26, a film no less prestigious. It's a 1994 film set in Chad and Libya, hmm. directed by
1: Daniel Petrie Jr. Mm-hmm. It's in the army now. <laughs> I did not think that's where we were going with that. Is this a yeah. Polly Shore movie? Yeah, Polly Shore, Lori
0: Petty, and Andy Dick.
1: Oh. Oh, I do like Lori man. Petty. Man.
2: <laughs> it may not surprise you to to learn I did not see this movie in the theater.
1: No kidding? <laughs> Are all the Pauly Shore movies in the same Pauly Shore universe? Oh. I don't know. 1994
0: is like the is like the Adam film year, right? That was that was the year you worked as a projectionist? 96, 97, 98. But 97 doesn't count cuz that here, it never happened? Right. That's true. Right. Okay. This is going to be great. You guys are going to love it. In the <laughs> Army now, next week on Friendly Fire. In the meantime, for John Roderick
3: and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison to the victor. Absolutely. Listen to Friendly Fire is a maximum fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. The show is produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music, and our podcast art is by Nick Dittmer. Want more epic episodes of Friendly Fire? Last year at this time, we covered Oliver Stone's Alexander from 2004, an historical drama based on the life of Alexander the Great. Feel like supporting our show? where you can leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can head to MaximumFun.org slash join, and for as little as $5 a month, you'll gain access to our bonus pork chop feed and all the bonus content from Maximum Fun. And don't forget, you can now follow us on Twitter and Instagram under the handles Friendly Fire RSS. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week with another great episode of Friendly Fire.